getting you set for everything Cardinals. In his second game as a Cardinal. Three home runs. This is the Redbird Report Show with Danny Mack. Out there. On 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler, the Kia powerhouse. Shop JimButlerKia.com. Welcome into the Redbird Report on 101 ESPN. Lots to get into for the next hour. My name is Dan McLaughlin. One of my guests is Ed Wheatley, who is a local historian of baseball here in St. Louis. He has a new book out, Baseball in St. Louis, from Little Leaguers to Major Leaguers. Who are the best players to ever come from our town? A dive into the rich history of both the Cardinals and Browns and how the Negro Leagues shape baseball in St. Louis. Ed Wheatley will be my guest. Also, I'll visit with Brian Walden. He covers the Cardinals minor league systems and runs the site, thecardinalsnation.com. Some fascinating information about minor leaguers and the upcoming baseball draft and some info you probably haven't thought about. Brian Walden also coming up. Let's start with hearing, though, from Cardinal owner Bill DeWitt. He was a guest on the Bernie Miklas Show last Thursday on what would have been the home opener for the St. Louis Cardinals. I know you're in touch with the commissioner and, and other owners. Where do you think this is headed? Um, what's your feeling about this, at least t- at this moment? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, of course, games have been canceled through April. Um, we don't really know when the start of the season might occur, and you know, we're hoping it's sooner rather than later. Uh, obviously, we're, uh, you know, a bit at the mercy of the pandemic. Uh, and we certainly don't want to open a ballpark uh, unless it's 100% safe. So, um, you know, it just remains to be seen. These things are, uh, you know, they're unique. And I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, but there are a lot of things talked about. Uh, but, you know, I think we just have to sit and wait and play it out and see how it develops. I just wonder with all the, you know, people losing work and the economic damage, I wonder if all sports are going to be hurting for a while. And as someone who has a franchise, um, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it'll take a toll. There's no question about that. But I think the, the broader perspective is that when baseball comes back, I mean, I really do believe baseball is America's game. It's been the longest uh, running sport, professional sport, amateur sport, whatever you call it. Um, it did come back after the pandemic of 1918. Uh, and, you know, we've weathered a lot of storms. I haven't seen in my lifetime anything like this. Uh, of course, we had 9-11 and, uh, you know, some wars along the way. Uh, but, um, you know, this is this is unique. But I think once we do get back, I think, the fans and, and the American people will feel like, you know, we're back to what America's all about again. And I, I think baseball can really help heal a lot of the damage that this pandemic has, has uh, created. And I was excited to see what our, some of our young outfielders could do as well um, when they got sustained playing time and had a chance to prove what, what they could do. I mean, they were uh, strong minor league uh, candidates and you know big leagues are different but you know it's uh, they had a good uh, profile coming up and so you know I think that was um, to be determined I mean a, a bit of a question mark what what our outfield was going to look like who was going to start at what position um, but that kind of makes it fun and interesting and uh, one thing I did believe is that there was a lot of talent out there and 
Now, how that talent played out when you get into the heat of competition, uh, you know, remains to be seen. But uh, that's always the case with young players. I felt good about our starting staff. Um, KK came in here and he had a great spring and really impressed everybody with his uh, uh, not only his talent but his demeanor and his enthusiasm. So I felt good about our our rotation and, and also about our bullpen. Some of the young guys look good and. Uh, you know, we've got a very good defensive club. We run the base as well. We do some things that help you win. Um, and so, you know, I think it, Central Division is going to be a dogfight. Uh, good teams. The Cubs are good. The Reds got way better. They're really a good team. Milwaukee's good. Uh, Pittsburgh is uh, uh, developing. Uh, and, you know, the Cubs are strong. So, you know, we've, it's a tough division. And uh, as you saw with some of the early projections, different people picked different clubs to win the division. But, um, you know, I liked our team a lot, and hopefully we can get out there and prove it. Interesting stuff with the chairman of the St. Louis Cardinals, Bill DeWitt, and Bernie Miklas on his show last week. From a medical perspective, what is happening with the coronavirus? I talked to Dr. Rick Lehman uh, orthopedic surgeon here in town and a guy that has handled many of the top athletes here in St. Louis from ACLs and knee constructions and elbow reconstruction, shoulders, all those things, various different sports, baseball and beyond. Rick Lehman this past week talking about the impact that this has made on sports. Well, from a medical perspective, this is unprecedented. So we've never had a situation where there's been so much going on in terms of people being so sick and then just absolutely no care for the average person, right? So if you have coronavirus, there's a lack of medical supplies, lack of medical resources. But if you're just the average person and you hurt your knee, you hurt your shoulder, you have just ABC medical problems, all of the elective surgeries are basically on hold and medical services are on hold. So it's really a trying time because for, for people that are real sick, you know, they're in the hospital, but if you tear your ACL tomorrow, there's no way you're going to get surgery. There's no way you're going to get looked after. So again, very, very uh, trying time, something we've never seen before. I'm assuming you're seeing that in the, in the field that you're in, which is ACLs and knee surgeries, elbow surgeries, uh, Tommy John surgeries, all those kind of things. Are you seeing that uh, have an impact on, on sports in that regard? Absolutely. And, you know, that hasn't changed. People are still coming in with these problems. Now, they're not out playing uh, competitive sports right now, but people that were injured four to four weeks ago, six weeks ago, pitchers, shoulders, you know, they're coming in and basically still injured, still need to get care, and we're unable to provide that care. How about what happened then with Noah Syndergaard and people see that and he gets the Tommy John surgery? I- I'm assuming that has kind of, you know, shook the sports world a little bit in your community? Well, we got backlash. Uh, They got back. The Mets got backlash. Everybody got backlash. Social media has been very unkind to the sports community in general. And you can understand that. Somebody saying, look, people are dying. You need the resources. And now you operate on somebody who's a professional pitcher just because he's a professional pitcher. And you can really understand both sides of the coin. Obviously, the Mets want him back. They're paying him a lot of money. And people are saying, why didn't you take those resources and treat somebody who was going to die? So again, you can see both sides of the coin, but I got five, six kids in my practice right now, scholarship athletes, 
need surgery and weren't able to do the surgery. So just think you have a son or a daughter. They got a scholarship to play football at Ohio State. They tore their ACL. We've been rehabbing them, getting ready for the surgery, and all of a sudden surgeries are put on hold, and boom, you know, your your, your athlete can't progress to, to do what he needs to do, which is to play to play football and train to play football. Are you seeing the, the, the injuries drop right now just because there's not competitive sports, or are people, for lack of a better term, still getting hurt because they're in training? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think we're going to see the injury numbers drop going forward right now we're treating all the people that were injured that we've not really been able to appropriately take care of can't have their surgeries yet so those people we're we're still treating and i think because there's no competitive sports going on immediately those numbers will drop in the future but there's going to be such a backlog to try to catch up i don't know that we're going to feel that effect in terms of uh, when we do return to sports i'll be fascinated to see if injuries pop and spike because the fact is that maybe we rush guys back. Do you think that's a concern right now in the medical field with sports? I think it's a huge concern, especially in track and field and some of the other sports. So you can imagine if you were to start playing hockey right now, you have to go almost through training camp again. The guys haven't played, etc. And And now all of a sudden, you know, you're on the ice. So I think you're going to see a lot of sports when they come back not have the appropriate time to get ready especially if they start trying to, if they do one or two weeks of spring training and then boom, try to play baseball, you could imagine what would happen. That's your field. But I see a lot of people coming back too early or people just saying, look, I can go play golf. I'm just going to go jump on the golf course and not do any of the appropriate stretching, not getting ready, et cetera. And I'm talking about a high, high level, PGA level. And I worry about that. I think you're going to see a lot of soft tissue injuries, a lot of ligament injuries because people are just going to rush back. That's Rick Lehman. I'm Dan McLaughlin. This is the Redbird Report. Coming up, we'll talk about the minor leagues with Brian Walton of thecardinalnation.com, and that's next. We are right back to it. More Cardinals talk right now. This is the Redbird Report with Danny Mac on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler Kia. This is the Redbird Report on 101 ESPN. Coming up, I'll visit with Ed Wheatley. He has a brand-new baseball book out, and I think you're going to enjoy it. And our conversation, Baseball in St. Louis, from Little Leagues to Major Leagues. Ed Wheatley coming up later in the show. Now time to visit with Brian Walton of thecardinalnation.com. And there's been a lot of news with the current agreement between the Players Association and Major League Baseball. But what does it mean for minor leaguers? What does it mean for the draft? What does it mean, Brian Walton? Well, the draft, you know, part of this agreement said that the uh, commissioner has the right to move the draft back from its June 10th date to as late as July 20th. And the signing date would be as late as August 1st. And those are uh, just guidelines right now because there is no concrete date. They want to wait and, you know, get a little more time. What we do know is that the 40-round draft is extinct. Uh, this year it'll be reduced from 40 to as few as five. And again, Manfred has the choice. Rob Manfred, commissioner, has the choice to decide whether they'll go five or maybe a few more rounds. And sort of the rumor mill says, you know, the sooner play starts and the sooner revenue gets flowing, the more inclined uh, ownership would be to draft more players uh, this year. So, but five is the only guarantee this year. Um, so it's going to be a, a much different draft obviously. Absolutely. What about undrafted players and their bonuses and how that works? How's it worked in the past and how's it going to work going forward? 
Well, teams had flexibility. Normally in the draft, the first 10 rounds were slotted. So a team would be given a, a, a basic pool of money for the first 10 rounds that they could use, you know, in the five, six, seven million dollar range, depending on the team in the previous year. And, but if teams wanted to go over that amount, uh, to not spend all that money, but use some of that money to enhance bonuses on later rounds, um, they could do that. It, it, otherwise, players after the 10th round could not be signed for more than 125000 unless they used leftover money from the first 10 rounds. The new rule for this year and next year is that the, while, the, while the pool money is the same for the first five rounds or 10 if they do that many, after the, the, the draft, the unsigned players cannot get more than $20,000 each. So instead of 125 down to 20. Now, the impact of that is, hey, even though they're only going to draft, say, five rounds, you'd think then there would be many more guys signed as free agents. But when the, when the amateurs look at this money, they're going to say, hey, you know, it's not worth it to sign right now. Maybe I'm better off to go back to school. And then couple that with a decision from the NCAA, which is to give players, uh, seniors, another year and give them up to six years to complete their eligibility. And then the fact that they're going to release, re relax their current limitations of 35 players on a roster and 27 on scholarship in baseball, they're going to relax those rules. You know, the, really the push will be on for these uh, amateurs, whether they're high schoolers or college juniors, whatever, to go back to, to school for another year and wait to see what happens in 2021. And there's no way that a team could get creative, right? I mean, they, they let's say a kid gets undrafted, but yet he would have been, let's just say for argument's sake, um, in the rounds of 11 to 15. I mean, that, that, that pool, that, that money that is there, a team could not get uh, creative doing something to incentivize that, to make it better, to make that kid make the decision to come out. Probably not. It doesn't look like it. And it's not totally clear yet whether, you know, teams would be able to take that, uh, you know, slot money and apply it for free agents. That hadn't been the case in the, in the past before the slot money, the underspend slot money had to be used on draft picks. So, but I, you know, it's, it's clear that, you know, given the uncertainty about the season, Baseball is limiting the number of players that they're bringing into the organizations because while the full season teams, and here I'm talking about, you know, the triple A, double A, those teams are going to have to play somehow because they're the injury pipeline. They're the reserve pipeline for the majors. But when you get down to short season baseball, and here I'm talking about uh, state college in the uh, New York Penn League, Johnson City in the Appalachian League, those leagues don't start play until after the draft, mid the second half of June, and they only play till Labor Day. So if there's any doubt about baseball being able to resume this summer, there are those saying short season ball this year, you know, may not even happen at all. And of course, one reason that you, you know, that plays into that is you're only drafting five players, you know, per organization. So it sort of plays into the hand of what, Major League Baseball wants to do next year, which is eliminate, you know, up to 42 teams and eliminate some of those short season levels. So, yeah. you know, it, it could be because of the coronavirus and the shorter draft uh, that is actually going to get implemented kind of through the back door. How about uh, minor leaguers right now? How about uh, how they're being paid in the interim? What's what's going on with them? Well, there was an announcement uh, made, uh, I believe yesterday or the day before, that the plan that MLB had to pay minor leaguers $400 per week that was announced back in, in right uh, about a week after camps closed, they're going to continue that $400 weekly allowances 
through the end of May. And that minor league players will also then continue to receive their health benefits. So that's a good deal. That's a big deal. Um, the $400 is, is interestingly the same from AAA all the way down to the youngest players that would have been either in regular spring training camp or extended spring training camp. And that's another ramification here that a lot of folks maybe didn't understand. The number of players that were covered in the first group of $400 allowances that were to run through April 8th, kind of the end of, of minor league spring training, those were basically the people who were already you know, in camp, invited to minor league camp, or people that were in major league camp, uh, non-roster guys that were sent out. Now, this group actually includes those players who would have come in for extended spring training. And again, extended spring training is the next group of players, the players that don't make the full season teams, the four full season teams, Memphis, Springfield, Palm Beach, Peoria. Those players, the extended spring training, they basically play, continue to play games in Jupiter on the backfields in April, May, uh, into the beginning of June. And then they're normally joined by the, the drafted players and they make up the short season teams. So the good news is all these players are going to get their $400 weekly allowances at least through the end of May. The bad news is that we're starting to trickle out that a number of organizations have released a number of players, which, you know, really doesn't look good at this time. And in fact, at the major league level, they put a transaction freeze in place so that this kind of thing could not happen. I, I always love visiting with Brian Walton of thecardinalnation.com. You get such great news. International signings, the impact on the upcoming July 2nd class. What what do you see right now with the international signing class in and again, that date of July 2nd. Yeah, the July 2nd class, that's sort of the, you know, the colloquial words that are used to describe the international signing period, which begins on July 2nd each year and then runs until uh, June 15th of the next year. That's the time in which organizations can sign these young international players. And they're given a pool amount. Again, the amount's in the 5 to $7 million per year to spend on international players. Now, the current class, is, is, you know, close to being done. So most all the money for the 2019-2020 international class, that money's already spent. And the next class, starting this next July 2nd, most of that money's committed as well because deals get, get made on handshakes well ahead of when the formal signing can start. But what the decision has been made, and, and, you know, sort of like at the major league and minor league levels as well, it's about deferring expense because, let's face it, you know, major league revenues are down as well, so they got to defer expense. So Rob Manfred has the right to delay this July 2nd signing period until as late as next January 15th. So, of course, what that means is basically a half a year of all that expense would move out of 2020 into 2021. Now, again, that isn't decided yet, but that could also happen for the 2022 class as well. Uh, they haven't cut the bonuses, but, again, the date in which they start spending, you know, could slide to the right. And I'm sure, you know, they're going to be watching, you know, this, you know, the, 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 the major situation of the coronavirus and, and when the game can start, when the revenue can start again, to give them guidance on when they want to turn the international uh, signing money back on. What do you think will happen uh, with a minor league season in terms of, let's just say, Let's throw a, just a random date out there. So let's say July 1st is when baseball would come back, fingers crossed. Um, what do you think happens with a minor league season with that? Is it all systems go, or do you think there's just too many variables to try to even predict something like that? Well, I mean, let's just step back and look at the raw numbers. Uh, for Major League Baseball to start again 
um, they're either going to have to play potentially in some empty stadiums or maybe move away from some of the hot spots and have neutral site games in order to get going. Now, if you have double A AA and triple A going again, that's 60 more cities that have to be cleared to allow teams to play. And that's going to be a challenge. Um, I've heard some rumors about the fact that maybe minor league baseball is going to be just uh, played in the complexes in Florida and Arizona. And, you know, they, it, it's just basically big scrimmages or, you know, like big spring training camp and that, you know, maybe there won't be games in the minor league cities this year as a way to try to control, um, you know, the, the respreading or the, you know, recurrence of, of the virus if this goes on so long. And in that environment, you know, they'd basically be back squad, inter squad games, but at least there would be some players ready to step in when there were injuries at the at the major league level. You know what I find fascinating with this is that in the minor leagues, that's when you're getting over, you know, getting over the hump and that's when you're becoming a major league talent potentially. And that's what the goal is. Um, I got to wonder that if you don't have a year in which there's competition, how much that stunts the growth of a young player, not just major leaguers. I mean, cause certainly that could have a difference with those guys too. I mean, you got to stay sharp, right? I mean, it, that's what it's all about. It's these guys are creatures of habit. They, they, they work on various things throughout the year to stay in, in major league camp or to be major leaguers, but in minor leagues, you know, you see significant jumps with players because they're so young physically, emotionally, mentally. I don't know, Brian. I, I think that's a fascinating aspect of this, just what happens if it stunts certain players' growth and they just hit a wall. Because if you're not playing competition, it's it's hard not to, you know, to, to improve on the things that you have to get better at. And it's, and it's something we'll, we'll never know. You know, we'll never know about player A, you know, if he doesn't come to be, you know, what he could have been. Uh, you know, the organizations uh, have a have a site, Team Builder, that they all the players go on and they get their workouts and they're communicating with the coaches and the staff. So, you know, uh, everything's being done that can, but, you know, every player is different in terms of what access to equipment he has, you know, whether you know, players to work out, you know, not everybody has batting cages or, you know, video capabilities or whatever. And, you know, it's one thing to be playing catch every day, you know, with your with your neighbor or your or your buddy down the street, but being ready to play at the highest level is something that you just can't turn it on, you know, on and off like a faucet. And, you know, it's going to be challenging, you know, for players, whether we're talking about major leaguers on down to, you know, kids from the Dominican Republic or Venezuela. Well, I'm curious about your thoughts on this, the major league baseball season, when it could resume, what that schedule might look like, the all-star game. What do you think about all those, uh, those factors that we're talking about there? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Dan. You know, you, the most optimistic view would be that players could somehow get back to camp in the second half of May and maybe the season could start in early June. But, you know, that's, that feels like wishful thinking here on the, on the first day of April. Uh, but, you know, if they could do that, they might be able to squeeze in 120, 130 games by, by using uh, double headers, you know, perhaps. And, you know, there's been talk and maybe you, I'd like to hear your opinion on this, which, whatever you've picked up, but, I think what I'm hearing is that they want to try to pick up the season where it ended and not, you know, completely redo the schedule where they have to change travel plans and all that around. But to squeeze double headers in, you know, means there would have to be some adjustment, certainly to the current schedule, right? Absolutely. And to your point, to follow up on that, yeah, that's been my understanding. You just kind of pick it up. So if it's July 1st, you're you're playing July 1st on the schedule of what was the original schedule. Now, um, I think you make a, a great point. Well, what does that mean for doubleheaders? Well, 
I don't know. And and if you're trying to figure in as many games as you can, you could play a double. So say you're playing the Cubs, right? Let's just for argument's sake, it's July 1st. And you got a three game series with the Cubs, and you're on a weekend, and you're saying, okay, we're going to play on a Friday night. We're going to play two then on Saturday. Well, what about Sunday, right? So what happens there? How, how much can you squeeze into that to playing those double headers? And it could be just a logistical nightmare with tickets and trying to get people to the ballpark if. Knock on wood, we'd be able to do that. Um, I, I just find it very, very tough. I also think about this, too, with the schedule. If you did that and they find out ways to do it, uh, I, as it pertains to the Cardinals, I'd be very curious how many games you have left with, the, let's say, the Pittsburgh Pirates or the lesser mm-hmm. teams, you know, and is that truly a fair schedule that you're giving for the competition, which is something to think about. Yeah, that's right, Dan. And, you know, the way that they'll try to work that out is – that, you know, the new games, I call them new games, that would be scheduled during the month of October. Because, you know, the rumor is, you know, the only way you could get to 120, 130 games is to play pretty much the whole month of October. And obviously, those games aren't scheduled. So how do you decide, that, let's say, if three months of the regular season is lost, you know, which third of that for those three months you tack on in, in, in October? And, you know, there's going to be claims of unfairness if, you know, some teams get, what's perceived as a tougher schedule than the others, because by definition, whatever schedule is played is going to be imbalanced. There's just no way around it. How about the umpires? We haven't talked about them. They're on the field. They're missing games. What, what's going on with the umpires? Yeah, well, uh, the, the news that we saw on Tuesday was that the umpires have been advised by Major League Baseball to file unemployment. So they're basically, uh, you know, like lots and lots of other workers who, who, don't have jobs. Now, I don't know how strong the umpires union is and how much money they have in reserve to help their members, but it looks like umpires are going to be on unemployment. TheCardinalNation.com. If you haven't uh, figured it out, Brian's got an unbelievable website in which he is covering Major League Baseball, also covering, as you can listen and imagine, a ton of the minor leagues. So we don't have minor league games. There, There aren't prospects to talk about in terms of what they're doing on the field right now, Brian. So uh, what are you doing with thecardinalnation.com? Because you've got uh, articles up there every single day. One of my, one of my uh, wish, uh, things on my long wish list that I've never gotten time to do in recent years was to go back and do a, a, a history series on the Cardinals minor league system and to not only look at the system uh, as a whole, how it's performed over time, and who some of the key individuals are, but then by the individual levels, so AAA, AA, et cetera. And so we're you know, just getting into that series, uh, the article up today is high A, so we've had triple, uh, triple A and double A so far, and we'll be going through all eight levels. And then after that, we'll get into some of the top performers, and uh, you know whether they're MVPs or or stat leaders in various leagues or across the system over time. So it's going to be a nice series where we're delivering new content every day about uh, some of the rich history of the Cardinals Player Development Organization. I'm really curious when you're doing this at thecardinalnation.com. Again, go by, uh, uh, to that website with Brian and 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 make sure you uh, subscribe. It's, it's really great info. I, I'm curious, as you're doing the research on these teams, players, cities, how much do you do you see the the fingerprints of let's say uh, Branch Rickey or George Kissel or some of the great names that we've had in this organization? You know, I, I think it's easy for people to think about a, a, a such a powerful and influential figure like George Kissel to say, well, you know, he was kind of this roving instructor who showed up and imparted wisdom, and like Yoda, he you know headed <laughs> off into the 
you know, into the background. But George Kissel actually managed in the minor leagues at a number of different levels oh, yeah. over time, typically at the lower level of the systems. But he also spent time uh, on the major league staff. Uh, you know, redhead him up with the with the major leagues. So you know, he's been he basically was all over the entire system, uh, and it's really you know very very interesting to see. The, the guys who, you know, coach him, Sparky Anderson was a minor league manager in the Cardinals system. Who knew, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, it was interesting. George was with Tony La Russa, too. People forget about that. He was traveling at the latter stages of his career with Tony La Russa. Tony wanted him around as a sounding board. And think about that, Tony wanting a sounding board for him. But um, that's the impact of this man. And, and I don't think we can talk about that enough, just what – an unbelievable baseball man that George Kissel was. And it's, you know, it's a wonderful testament that not only the Cardinals named the, the entire minor league complex after George Kissel, but that their, you know, peer award, as we talked about last week, you know, for the leading individual in the player development organization to be the honor, you know, the, the honorees of the George Kissel award. And just to show you, you know, again, not that anybody didn't know it already, how much they thought of George Kissel, George Kissel himself was the first winner of the George Kissel Award. Yeah. Uh, final final thought from you. Um, and it's kind of a, a human, uh, what's the best way to say it? I, I guess just the human aspect of the game of baseball. What, what do you miss about the game right now? If I was going to say to Brian Walton, I ran into you on the street and I said, Brian, we're not playing baseball. What do you miss about it? What is it? Well, uh, just being there, being there. I mean, I was, you know, I don't normally go down to spring training until the minor league game starts. So I was literally just a couple of days away from getting on an airplane and be on the backfields with my radar gun and my camera and my notepad and, you know, you know, talking to players and coaches and fans and, you know, doing what I do, which is to report on the Cardinal system. And the fact that there's not live baseball, you know, to report on is something that I miss greatly. I, now my next trip would have been, uh, extended spring training at the start of May, where I'd also go down and see Palm Beach, and so I, I haven't canceled my reservations yet. But you know, that's more my my uh, heart, you know, than my head, because of course I know there's not going to be any baseball in the beginning of May either. And you know, now it's June, and the draft's not going to happen, and it's just you know one thing after another. I don't know how long it's going to be till I get to be, you know, uh, to see live baseball again, and that's really, really discouraging. That's Brian Walton coming up. We'll visit with Ed Wheatley and talk about his new book, diving into the history of baseball in St. Louis. This is the Redbird Report on 101 ESPN. The Redbird Report with Danny Mac on 101 ESPN. More of the Cardinals talk you know and love. This is the Redbird Report. With Danny Mac on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler Kia. A great baseball book is now out for you. Baseball in St. Louis. From Little Leagues to Major Leagues. It's written by my guest, Ed Wheatley. And Ed has done so much tremendous work. That name may ring a bell for sports fans and Cardinal fans and Browns fans. He's done so much work with the St. Louis Browns. And also just keeping the memories of many people and the game of baseball alive here in town. Ed, as always, good to visit with you. How are things? Oh, glad to be with you. Just trying to get through this like everyone else. Hope everybody's safe and uh, their families are in good shape. And let's get through it and go live some baseball memories. You bet. Uh, tell us about the book. What is this book all about? Really, this book is about the love of the game of baseball. And it kind of is an offshoot of my Browns book where uh, you, you just saw this love of the Browns team. But it's more than that the love of baseball in St. Louis. And, you know, it really comes to the fact that as so many people say, St. Louis is the best baseball town 
in America. And you start looking, why is that? And it really starts with the roots of the love of baseball. You know, we joke that, and I used in the uh, opening uh, the Bull Durham statement from uh, Annie Savoy, Susan Sarandon's character, where she says, I've tried all the religions I really have, but the church of baseball fills my soul day in and day out. And I think that says so much for St. Louis. You know, we joke that opening day is our national holiday. And you look at how people are in the summer. You know, you'd be standing in a grocery store line. People don't talk to you. But, you know, you'll be wearing a Cardinal hat or your Cardinal shirt, and there'll be a great play. Hey, somebody will say, hey, did you see that catch Harrison Bader made last night? What about, you know, uh, Colton Wong's double? Did you see that? You know, people talk. It brings people together, whether it's just chit-chat or even in times of social unrest uh, or even these economic times. Baseball as something that it brings people together. And I wanted to explore what St. Louis was. And that's when you find there's this tremendous history. It goes all the way back to 1860, the very first game played under the Alexander Cartwright's rules of baseball was played at fairgrounds in 1860. That's a year before the Civil War. And we then have all this great history. How did it take from this amateur to professional to the Cardinals that we have today. But more importantly, and there is this mass education of people from playing in high school, American Legion, college, and you start realizing St. Louis had some of the best high school programs in the country, some of the American Legion championships, the uh, Union Printers National Championships. All this really comes back, and I think we've got a tremendously educated fan base that, you know, they're the kind of t people that come to the game. And the other team playing the Cardinals, they make a great play. Our fans are known and respected for giving that great play an applause, not booze, but applause. Or when a guy like Albert Pujols, who abandoned St. Louis, he comes back, what happens? Standing ovation after standing ovation. It's just why are we in this making of this, this baseball town? So if you had to answer that question, why has it been so good, what do you think the answer is? Simply the love of the game. You know, it started as a time the game started back in the late 19th uh, century in the 1800s because that's all there was was baseball. They don't have TV. They don't have radio, movie theaters. They don't have all this. Baseball became embedded. It started as an amateur game, as clubs farmed to do some type of recreation because all people had was long hours of hard sweat labor. But baseball was a way to uh, relax. And then it became, you know, factory versus factory community versus community, and it, and it all built out. And it, people bonded with the game. It was something also that almost anybody can play baseball. You know, not everybody's going to be a major leaguer. Very few do. But everybody, boy, girl, no matter race, religion, whatever, has played baseball in, 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 in our city and state. So, uh, And that's the thing, too. This is not just about St. Louis City proper. We go across the river into Illinois, Belleville, Edwardsville, you know, New Athens, Granite City, just as much as we go out west into, you know, St. Charles, Wentzville, and those areas. It's amazing what you find in the history of baseball. What did you find about Little Leagues in particular with uh, baseball in St. Louis? We all played Little League baseball, so what did you find out about it? Well, I mean, it, I start the, the, the thing is where playground uh, leagues were formed by the police department in the 30s and 40s, but the most amazing thing that few people – realize and recognize is the Cory League, which is in all 50 states and in other countries across the globe. It was founded here in St. Louis 
by George Corey and is still headquartered here in St. Louis. Uh, even though the Corey Leagues have been kind of taken over by a lot of these communities running their own programs, the basis and the foundation uh, for the Little Leagues is, is the Corey Leagues, which is a St. Louis product. And, you know, talking to, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of people I, I worked with in writing this book, and actually the Corey Leagues opened up and gave me their whole archives to go through. I think the proudest moment for any young kid from the 50s and uh, in, in early 60s was to be on that Corey League All-Star team and have your team picture out in left field at Sportsman's Park with that big iconic scoreboard in the background. I think for so many people, that was one of the first keepsakes they immediately brought out to tell their story. How about the best players that came from St. St. Louis and the city of St. Louis? I mean, I've got an idea of who they might be, but uh, in your research, who were the best players that you found? Well, I mean, and that's, a, that's an interesting thing in, in debate um, where I've gone through all these years of all the great high schools, all the great American Legion teams, and how many men uh, make the major leagues. And, you know, the estimate is about six million kids play baseball every year. And they've been doing this for, you know, many, many decades. And how many, how few people, as you well know, Dan, probably the last I looked, it was like 19,500 men played in the major leagues going back to 1876 records when the uh, National League was formed. So making the, the major leagues is hard. And what I found for a lot of these great amateur ballplayers in St. Louis, you know, some of them got hurt. They couldn't go and make it. Technology didn't exist to make them better. Many of these players also said, I got blocked. I shouldn't have signed with the Yankees as an example. The Yankees in 1952 had 24 minor league teams. That's 600 players you're going to compete with. And it was always, I wish I'd have signed with the Phillies or the Senators. I might have made it to the major leagues. But, you know, we have quite a few men who made it to the major leagues. We list all those players, just like we list all the players in the St. Louis Amateur Baseball Hall of Fame. But the best in St. Louis, what I did, I went through all this analysis and took two at each position, three right-handed starters, three left-handed starters, and uh, put three guys in the bullpen. And, you know, who were the best of the best? And, you know, immediately everybody knows or should resonate that Yogi Bear is the best major leaguer to come out of St. Louis without a question. When you look at all his, uh, his uh, World Series appearances, you know, he was in the World Series 14 times. He was an all-star 18 times. And then people always say, well, Joe Gargiola, he's your backup. It's like, no, no, no. There's an, uh, a man named Elston Howard, who actually was Yogi's successor with the Yankees. And, and Elston had 10 World Series appearances and 12 all-stars and won the MVP in 1963. Elston Howard is probably the greatest African-American ball player to come out of St. Louis. But that's just the kind of hot stove debate that's the beauty of baseball is you know who should play this position or that position and you know i did it found out there's a man nobody knows about is a pitcher a right-handed starting pitcher the first man to win 300 games before cy young pud galvin how many people know who pud galvin is that he grew up in st louis and he's in the hall of fame but uh, the other thing is we've got great players you know you have a first baseman you got ryan Howard, Nate Colbert, Roy Severs played left and he played first, but we put him, Roy Severs was the first American League Rookie of the Year in 1949. He's in the outfield uh, with, with Lee Thomas. Lee Thomas, we, we recognize as a, as a great ball player with 
the Angels. He signed originally with the Yankees, was traded to the Angels in 61, had uh, multi-years of 20 or more home runs. Then he came back later on and led the front office um, activities with the Cardinals and then went to be the GM of the Philadelphia Phillies when they won the, uh, the pennant. So there's strong people in picking this team, and it's a great thing to just sit around and ask people who are the best at each position. And I will say shortstop was a, probably the hardest of them all. And I was talking with Dal Maxville, who are starting shortstop on this all St. Louis team. And people forget he's got four World Series ring and he's got another World Series appearance um, in 68 when the Cardinals didn't win. But he, he got a ring in 64 and 67 with the Cardinals. And then he went out to Oakland as part of their great teams and got it. But finding a backup, and I even asked Dal when I was talking to him about it, put your general manager hat on and tell me, who do you think is the best um, shortstop next to you to come out of St. Louis? And he says, that's a, that's a good, good question because so many um, people have asked him that, and it's hard. We didn't have a lot of shortstops. We got a lot of great pitchers. I mean, you know, how many Cy Youngs did we have by St. Louis pitchers? But in the end of the day, we went with uh, Jerry Buchek, who helped the Cardinals in their pennant years of the uh, um, 60s. You know, he was a McKinley High product. But, I mean, when you look at how many Cy Youngs and, and no hitters have been thrown by St. Louis pitchers in the major leagues, it's, it's amazing. And you find out sometimes they weren't even the best on their high school team. It's just that these players didn't make it up. So. It's just a great story to sit around, read the book, all these great players, and think who are the best coming out of St. Louis. Ed Wheatley is my guest. The book, Baseball in St. Louis, from Little Leagues to Major Leagues. We'll talk about the Negro Leagues in St. Louis when we come back. More of the Cardinals talk you know and love. This is the Redbird Report with Danny Mack on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler Kia. Ed Wheatley is my guest, Baseball in St. Louis, from Little Leagues to Major Leagues, the author of a new book that chronicles uh, the history of baseball in our town, from the great players, Little League, Corey League, American Legion, all the way to the pros. It is in this book, and the photography and the research and the history here is incredible. We often you know, talk about the Cardinals or the Browns, and that's great, but there's also the history of the Negro Leagues here in St. Louis. What did you find out about the Negro Leagues that, as you researched this and what it meant to St. Louis and vice versa? That is a very interesting uh, history that the Negro Leagues and the African-American experience in baseball in St. Louis has a tremendous history and a tremendous background. And um, Martin Matthews of Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club, he kind of challenged me as we were doing research, and I went to him to open up their archives that the African-American community isn't aware of this history. How will you uh, bring this out? And you know, I think we did a really well job, and this may be uh, an expansion of that becomes the next project. But, you know, we hear about the stars, and I always tell people, as you drive down Highway 40 to go to a Cardinal game, and you look over when you come upon Chaffetz Arena there at Compton, and you see Harris Stowe in the field right there, that's where the Stars Stadium was there at Compton and Market. It's still a baseball field as part of Harris Stowe, but that is really where the Stars made their great name. And before the Stars, there was the Giants. And the thing the the Giants played is the uh, Negro League started to form. And at that time, they were just kind of playing games here and there. And it's been 100 years. This is the 100th anniversary of the creation of the Negro Leagues in Kansas City, Missouri. And that's why uh, 
the museum, uh, the Negro Baseball League Museum is in Kansas City because that's where it was created 100 years ago this year. But the thing that I thought was really interesting, the Giants had an owner named Charles Mills, and he had kept this Giants team going, and the president of uh, the Negro League's name was Rube Foster. And Foster and Mills did not get along. There was challenges from both parts. Mills thought that the, the teams weren't getting enough for their fair share, and he was trying to do some uh, things outside the bounds of what Foster liked. And Foster really forced Charles Mills out of the Negro Leagues. And that's when another owner came in and bought him, and they changed their name to the Stars. That little scenario right there is just so reminiscent of what's going to happen 40 years later when they, um, baseball forces Bill Veck out of St. Louis and forces him to sell the team. So, you know, it's funny how baseball repeats itself. You know, when the Brown stockings first came together as a team that would eventually come and be the Cardinals, it started with a beer man. And then what saved the Cardinals uh, almost 70, 80 years later was another beer man, Augie Bush. And when you start connecting those stories. Absolutely. But back, but back to the Negro Leagues, I mean, there were five men in the Hall of Fame who were put in uh, from their play in the Negro Leagues from the, uh, the Giants and the Stars. And unfortunately, we don't remember them. We hear about Cool Papa Bell, and we hear about um, Satchel Paige, who never played with the Negro Leagues here, but he played with the Browns and you know, would be here regularly on his barnstorming tour. But you know, we, we need to remember who are these men. And the other thing, besides the Negro Leagues, there was a a league up in North St. Louis. It was called the Tandy League, and it was played at Tandy Park, which is in park located just across the street from Sumner High School. And it was the premier semi-pro team. It was also like the minor leagues to the to the Negro Leagues. And we had many, many great uh, ball players who would make the major leagues who played in the Tandy League. So that was their experience in this segregated world. So we really go into the history of the Giants, the Stars. We go into the history of this Tandy League and how these men who came and played there because they had no other place because we lived in a segregated world, even in baseball. And it was interesting to go into the book and find, as I spoke a moment ago about Stars Park, and we all know where Sportsman's Park was or we know where the two Bush stadiums downtown were. But, you know, the Giants played up at Clarence and Broadway, just at the foot of O'Fallon Park, where it makes that big bend at, at Highway 70 as you come downtown. Or, you know, you go to where uh, the Maroons played or the Terriers played in those early professional teams and where there's war. And it really was such a concentrated grouping of stadiums. And my favorite story is where Robeson Field, sometimes called Cardinals Field, where the Cardinals, uh, when the when they originally came into the National League, they came in as the Browns. And throughout the book, this is the thing I say, the, the, the term Browns is like a cat with nine lives. You have the Brown stockings in the American Association. You have the Brown stocking that first came into the National League in 1876. And people don't realize there were three iterations of National League teams from St. Louis before the team that we call the Cardinals joined in 1892. There had been two others that had joined uh, – the National League in 1876 played for two years, and then in 1886 and 85 they played for two years, and then finally in 1892 the Browns would change their name to Perfectos and the Cardinals. 
and they would stay to what we have today. But they played at Robeson Field at Vandeventer and Natural Bridge right across from Fairgrounds Park. And that field was the last wooden grandstand in the major leagues, and it burned down. And that's how Branch Rickey, who had moved from the Browns to the Cardinals, took the Cardinals down to play as tenants in Sportsman's Park for the Browns. But Mm -hmm. that field, I kind of joke in the book, the ashes from the fire must have really worked into the the field where they played ball because Beaumont High School at one time in the late 40s and 50s had more men in the major league than any other high school in America. So it had to be something from those fires and that site there where that all happened. But uh, it's those little quirks, probably one of my favorite quirks in the whole book, and you're a good South Sider, Dan, is corkball. Played it all the time. How many people realize corkball was a St. Louis institution that nobody really knew about around the country? And it was really World War II vets, uh, men in service, as they would go, they would take their tiny corkball and bats or get a broomstick and teach people how to play corkball all across. And that's where uh, the country, and that's how it became kind of a national thing. I I have stories about Yogi Berra teaching the Yankees what corkball is and how to play it. You know, and for us growing up in St. Louis, you know, it really started uh, with with Catholic priests. The the different parishes had their own things. And then every bar, you would see these batting cages behind the bars or even (laughs) downstairs if they had. And that's, you know, just one of the little oddities how corkball is a St. Louis institution. I'll wrap it up with this. What What's your favorite part of the book, or what are you most proud of as well with the book? Well, I think I'm the proudest of the people saying it brings back so happy memories. It touches them, and especially now in these times, we need something that's happy memories and good because you could be a regular Joe playing baseball, and you have stories of playing against Whitey Herzog and the New Athens, Illinois high school team. Or my favorite story is Dal Maxwell told me his dad worked long hours in the Granite City Steel Mill. In those days, you only had one car. And they couldn't get a manager for their their Corey League team over there in Granite City. So his mom did it. And I said, Dal, I wish you had a picture of this. But his mom would ride him to the park to have practice. She would be on her bike pedaling. He would be sitting on the handlebars holding two bats and the catcher's equipment so that his team could practice. That is, you know, just the image of what baseball meant to people in those days. Um, and I'm also interested in how people react to, as we spoke earlier, the all St. Louis team. Who do you think sure. were the best? And it's it's just an unbelievable history. Everything you point, and you don't have to be a big ball player. You simply were the ones who watched. Are the women? We include. You got to have women. And I've gotten to know through the reunions of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, you know, from the movie uh, The League of Their Own. Uh, I've I've met them and been part of their reunions up in Cooperstown. And, you know, we had four ladies who were stars in in those leagues. So, you know, this isn't just about men. This is about even the women. So, again, the book, Baseball in St. Louis. It's available wherever books are sold. My guest, Ed Wheatley. Ed, as always, great stuff. Love the research, your time that you put in this, your love of the game, and I know fans are really going to enjoy the book. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dan. appreciate it again. That was the Danny Mac Report on 101 ESPN, brought to you by Jim Butler, the Kia powerhouse. Shop JimButlerKia.com.